The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Investors shrugging off hotter-than-expected inflation data as the S&P 500 climbs to another all-time high. But futures are looking flat to start this Friday morning. Striking a deal, a group of bipartisan senators reaching an agreement on an infrastructure package as they now prepare to sell it to their respective parties. President Biden and G7 leaders preparing to formally kick off their summit as leaders make a deal to help other countries combat COVID-19. We are live overseas with the latest there. Gearing up to go public, Didi Chuxing formally files its IPO paperwork in what could be one of the biggest tech public offerings this year. And Apple's electric auto ambitions shifting into high gear. We've heard that before. The new hire, though, by the tech giant from one luxury automaker. It's Friday, June 11th, 2021, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good Friday morning. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan today. Here is how your money and the global markets are setting their day up. Right now, stock futures are showing what we'll call some stability. The S&P is implied higher by roughly three points, the Dow higher by around 56 points, and the Nasdaq indicated open higher by roughly six to seven points. It was an outperformer yesterday. This is after the S&P 500 rose to another record high yesterday, with investors largely shrugging off that key inflation report, showing a bigger than expected increase in pricing pressures. Taking a look at some of the meme stocks right now, a number of the big names among the Reddit crowd losing some serious steam yesterday pulling back amongst their recent rally. But right now you can see AMC up about 3%, GameStop roughly, roughly 5%, and then Bed Bath & Beyond, BlackBerry, and Costs, a bit of a mixed trade there. Also have to check on the cryptocurrency market, which has seen a big rotation out amid that meme stock rally as of late. But Bitcoin prices right now steadily higher by a modest 1%, relatively speaking. Right now 37047 the last trade with regard to how Coindesk and others are looking at uh, this particular price. Now look at copper on the physical commodity side. It's up nearly 29% so far this year, but has fallen nearly 5% just over the course of the last month. So again, maybe some of those commodity cost pressures coming off a little bit. We'll keep an eye on things like copper and lumber. A number of the key mining players, by the way, also down amid that fall in copper prices. Southern Copper down nearly 6% over the last week. Freeport McMoran falling about 3.5%. Alcoa down about the same. Rio Tinto just down over about 3% as well. So material stocks a little bit lower on this particular week. Now to this morning's top stories. That bipartisan group of 10 senators working on an infrastructure package say they have struck a deal. Reports say the plan will cost $1.2 trillion over eight years. That's below the $1.7 billion trillion price tag on President Biden's plan. Now, those reports suggest the senators plan to help pay for the package by using unspent COVID-19 funds and raising revenue by indexing the federal tax 
on gasoline to account for things like inflation. It would not include any tax increases, so to speak. G7 leaders are expected to announce a pledge to provide one billion doses of COVID-19 vaccines to poorer countries. That's according to reports. The move is part of a plan to vaccinate the world by the end of next year. The move comes after President Biden vowed to supercharge the battle against the virus with a donation of 500 million Pfizer-BioNTech shots. And lawmakers in China have formally passed a new law aimed at countering foreign sanctions. The country's top legislature approving that measure in response to U.S. and European efforts to pressure Beijing on issues including human rights, trade and technology. Under that new Chinese law, Chinese entities and individuals can file lawsuits in courts there seeking compensation for harm caused by some foreign sanctions. Well, back to the markets and investors appearing to shrug off again yesterday's hot inflation data. Your next guest says the market response was surprising. She cautions, don't count inflation fears out just yet. Aaron Gibbs is the chief investment officer of Gibbs Wealth Management. Aaron, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Let's talk about why the markets can take inflation data that's running the hottest level in years and say, hey, let's push them to record highs. Yeah, it was a bit of a head scratcher, Dom. It was certainly um, not what a lot of us expected, particularly when the CPI data came out so hot, uh, even compared to expectations. Um, but I think investors, or at least equity investors, are now really looking at what the bond market has been telling us for a couple months now is that they are, are convinced, or at least yesterday have been convinced that. Uh, inflation is transitory, and this is something that we'll be able to overcome. And I think also maybe investors were reassured uh, by the positive job reports, though that report tends to be very volatile. Um, but for the past two months, equity investors really have been behaving very differently from the bond market. While yields have been going down, you've seen these equity fears in the equity market really hovering. Um, and I'm not sure that that fear may not come back into the market again. I'm not sure that it's completely out of their system. Um, and so I'm a little cautious that we've really gotten over it and you know, that the equity markets are confident that uh, inflation is not going to be an issue when it comes to companies being profitable going forward. We were talking, Aaron, not long ago about rising interest rates over the course of the last six to nine months and how it's really affected some of the growthier aspects of the markets, especially in equities. We're talking about technology stocks, some of those big names in communications and media stocks that have been higher valuation types, so to speak. And then they get crushed because earnings and I'm sorry, interest rates go higher. Interest rates are now going lower. So doesn't it stand to reason that maybe we are justified at these levels and that technology stocks and communications services stocks are the ones that are powering these gains in the Nasdaq all over again? The problem is that they've done so well in 2020-20, they really do have difficult comps and difficult uh, hurdles to really achieve uh, spectacular growth going into 2020. When you look at their valuations, people really just piled in. There wasn't a lot of breath, and these, these mega-cap stocks were really the only stocks that were doing well in 2020. Uh, so they do have more difficulty in justifying that type of growth when, one, they did very well in 2020, and two, you've got companies that didn't do so well and are looking at really spectacular growth uh, coming out of the pandemic, this, this pent-up demand type of trade. Uh, so I think it is still very difficult to, to justify some of these mega-cap valuations, and there are exceptions. 
Um, but in general, I think mega caps do need to come down as we see broader strength across the U.S. market when we have uh, an economic acceleration environment. So, so Aaron, if there is an economic acceleration environment, if there is this pent up demand trade, if it stands to reason that the economic recovery story still has a runway left to go, that we're just maybe in the middle innings of this kind of recovery trade, then where do you go for that kind of value? In the past, it's been the small cap stocks. Is it the same case right now? Is it the reopening trade part two or three going back into those small caps? Are they the ones that are now due for record highs themselves? I think in general, yes, I think you're still looking at the the small caps really are positioned for the best recovery and for the best type of growth at, at a reasonable price, even going forward. And even though we've had about nine months of value outperforming growth and small cap doing better than uh, large cap, uh, I think the trade isn't over just yet, given we've got all of these components that say this is the type of environment where small caps win. And so I'm, I'm really advising investors that if they do have an overweight um, in mega caps or even if their, their large cap position has gotten a little overweight, that it's still there's still plenty of time to take that money off the table and transition it into small caps for the next six months to a year because they are the ones that really do look more valuable while still having double-digit growth for the next two years. All right, Aaron Gibbs, we're showing one-year charts here of the S&P 500 small cap index up at 75% over the course of one year. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Have a nice weekend. When we come back on the show, China taking dramatic steps to curb the growing COVID outbreak in Guangzhou. We are live on the ground with the very latest there coming up. Plus, your morning's big money movers, including what has shares of Vertex Pharmaceuticals plunging 11% in the pre-market trade. And later on, Brian Sullivan's conversations with Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Patterson UTI Energy CEO Andy Hendricks, one from one of the first post-pandemic energy conferences in person in a while. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. China is reinstating strict COVID rules to fight a new outbreak of the deadlier Delta variant of the COVID virus. The problem is especially bad in Guangzhou, the capital in the country's southern province. That is where we find CNBC's Arjun Karpal with the latest there. Good morning or good evening, Arjun. Good Good morning to you, Don. Well, look, there's only been 128 cases since late May, 
but authorities have moved very swiftly. And the reason is they're worried about the Delta variation of the virus, which we know to be highly transmissible. It started with a 75-year-old woman eating at a restaurant and it spread there. Mainly the big hotspot is the west of a city, the district called Liwan. That's where it's concentrated, but it has spread to other areas in the south of the city there. Now, authorities have moved very quickly, as I said, with some pretty drastic measures. They've uh, locked down this district known as Liwan. Literally, no one can come in and out. Even the other day, they were sending driverless cars in with supplies, such as food and medical supplies, to supply that area. One of the other things they've done is shut down some restaurants or move them to takeout only. And another big part of the containment measures is mass testing. Now, just behind me here, you can see some medical staff in PPE. Earlier, there were long lines of people waiting to get tested. They're just packing up for the day. But there is another line of people just back there, and they are waiting for their vaccines. Now, vaccine is an interesting topic here in China because... Many people in China, to some extent, China's been a victim of its own success. They dealt with the pandemic very swiftly last year. And many people felt safe. I remember speaking to my barber just a few weeks ago. He said, no, Guangzhou's safe. I don't need a vaccine. I'll wait a bit. But as soon as the, the uh, case came, he booked his appointment. And that's why you're seeing huge lines, a huge vaccination drive. And the authorities here are hoping vaccination with these measures can help contain this virus before it causes any real economic damage. Don, back to you. Arjun, let's talk about that economic impact there. Has there been any impact on on trade or the economy, given what we've seen with this kind of new mini outbreak, if you will, in Guangzhou? I just remember the pictures from New Year's Eve in in Wuhan, where it looked like it looked like partying like it was 1999. Has there been any kind of a slowdown now from levels that we've seen earlier on this year? Yeah, there certainly has, Dom. I mean, Guangdong province, the southern province in China, is extremely critical, critical for global trade. One of the world's biggest ports is based in the tech hub of Shenzhen called Yantian. There's reports there of uh, delays to shipping. Maersk, one of the, the shipping giants, said that you can expect 15-plus days of delays for their shipping. On top of, so that's global trade being impacted there already. At the moment, it seems contained, but obviously the longer this goes on, the more damage it will cause. Just here in Guangzhou, certainly the local economy is starting to feel the effects. Restaurants are at lower capacity. There's fewer footfall here. Just this morning, we're out at the business district. I could tell there are fewer cars on the road, fewer people in the office. And so you are seeing that impact filter through here for sure, Dom. All right. Arjun Karpal with the latest there. Stay safe there in Guangzhou. We appreciate it. Still on deck for the show, American Airlines betting big on electric with an investment in one startup now going public via, uh, what else, SPAC. But first, as we head out to break, details on a big event coming up on CNBC next week. It's a new era for business for Singapore. For travel in China. It's a new era of innovation. Of business for Hong Kong. For the travel industry. La Dolce Vita is finally in sight. Get the latest from around the world. From around the world. From around the world. From around the world. At CNBC's Evolve Global Summit. Live from London. Live from Singapore. Get all the latest from around the world at CNBC's Evolve Global Summit. Live on June 16th. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 
Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your big money movers, three stock stories of the morning. First up, it's Chewy, the pet products retailer reporting a surprise first quarter profit as sales rose more than 30 percent. Chewy is also raising revenue guidance for the full year. But shares are lower, as you can see there, one and a half percent pre-market as the company warns it's facing labor shortages and supply disruptions that led it to run out of some of its items. Stock number two, Dave and Buster's, the entertainment and dining chain reporting better than expected first quarter profits as revenues shot up 66 percent. The company believes sales may get back to pre-pandemic levels during this quarter, but it's also facing margin pressures due to high labor and other costs as well. Those shares up four and a half percent pre-market. And then finally, Vertex Pharmaceuticals shares are plunging by roughly 11 percent after the company says it's halting development of an experimental drug to treat a rare genetic disease that affects the lungs and liver. Vertex says it's encouraged the drug helped raise levels of a deficient protein that causes the disease, but not enough to provide substantial benefits to patients. Again, Vertex shares down about 11% in the pre-market trade. Well, the Hotter in Hell Energy Conference is taking place in Houston, Texas. Oil and gas companies from across the country are discussing demand, output, and operations during the virus pandemic. Our own Brian Sullivan spoke with Texas Governor Greg Abbott and asked him about the recent bills passed by Texas to weatherize its power grid after the deadly power outages in the winter in the state earlier this year. So we come out of the session extremely confident that we reformed everything that needed to be reformed in ways that will ensure that a, an event like this with regard to the power grid shutting down will never happen again. And Brian, this probably is the most important thing that I could tell your audience. I want everybody in your audience to know uh, that Texas passed comprehensive reforms that completely reform not just what went wrong uh, that caused the power grid to go down, but to ensure uh, that we had a, a strengthened, more stable system than ever before. First, what caused it to go down was, one, was an operator error. Two, because believe it or not, you know, when you have these power shutdowns, there are downtown areas like where you're at right now that will not be shut down. Hospitals don't get shut down. However, uh, when there were shutdowns by ERCOT, the power grid operator, it actually shut down power generating and power transmission facilities. Yeah. All you got to do to stop that is check off a box and send it to ERCOT. So real quick, let me list what we did. Uh, we added accountability for ERCOT as well as the Public Utilities Commission to ensure that the operational errors will never happen again. Uh, we put enforcement in those accountabilities so they can issue fines of up to a million dollars per violation uh, to make sure that uh, businesses will uh, that are involved in the power system, they will weatherize. I say weatherize because it's more just winterization. We need to make sure that we are weatherized for the summer. So mm -hmm. the, the, the power system in the state of Texas is weatherized to be able to deal with harsh weather, whether it be hot or cold. Uh, and then also we added more capacity. Brian, as we're speaking today, now, we have more power generating capacity than we've had in the history of our state, ensuring that we will be able to handle the oncoming growth that we continue to see in the Lone Star State. And it wasn't just that. It wasn't the storm. We've got the hack on Colonial. You are the pipeline capital of the United States. The Colonial Pipeline begins in Houston. 50 million Americans rely on that pipeline where we live in the New York, New Jersey, D.C. metropolitan areas. That is a critical fuel lifeline. Are you working with your companies? Are you talking to private companies and saying, what are you doing to protect yourself? Absolutely. So this was a, a you could say it's a wake up call. People have known about uh, this challenge before now. Uh, but yes, there's great collaboration in the state, in the public sector, as well as the private sector uh, to make sure 
uh, that other businesses, other essential services like pipelines will not be compromised like what happened. All right. Our thanks to Brian Sullivan and Governor Greg Abbott of Texas. Check out Brian's entire interview with the governor at CNBC.com. Well, still on deck for the show, President Biden set to meet with fellow G7 leaders with a number of global issues on the agenda. Steve Sedgwick is live on the ground with a look at what's topping that list. And if you have not already done so, please subscribe to our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify or other podcast apps. Worldwide Exchange, audio format. We'll be right back. Markets shrugging off hotter-than-expected inflation data, with the S&P 500 hitting a new record high. Morgan Stanley's Matthew Hornbach is here with why he says investors need to separate inflation optimism from hysteria. President Biden set to meet with fellow G7 leaders, taking on a long list of matters from the virus pandemic to a global tax rate. Our Steve Sedgwick is standing by live at the summit with the very latest there. And one of the most anticipated tech IPOs of the year. One step closer to reality as Didi files the paperwork for its IPO from China. It's Friday, June 11th. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan on this Friday morning. Here is how your money and investments are looking as we are halfway through the 5 a.m. Eastern time hour. Stock futures right now pointing to some modest gains in the overall market. The Dow implied higher by roughly 60 points. The S&P implied higher by roughly two points at the opening bell and the Nasdaq gaining about two points as well. Now, this is all after the S&P 500 rose to an all time high in yesterday's session with investors largely shrugging off that key inflation report showing a bigger than expected increase in pricing pressures. Now let's take a look at some of the meme stocks. A number of those big names among the Reddit crowd losing some steam in yesterday's session, pulling back amid their recent rallies. But right now, generally speaking, shares of AMC, GameStop, Bed Bath & Beyond, BlackBerry, all seeing some gains. Cost Corp, though, down about a half a percent in the pre-market trade. We are also seeing a rally this week in other areas, cybersecurity stocks. This is amid a number of those high-profile ransomware attacks. FireEye is up 12%. Zscaler and CyberArk both climbing nearly 11% as well over the week. And CrowdStrike up more than 8% too. A different story, though, for the home builder stocks. Some of the biggest names in the sector, like Pulte and Lennar and DR Horton, are all down roughly 5% or more. This as investors await that weekly mortgage bailout number that comes out at 7 a.m. Eastern time. Well, making headlines this morning as well, Chinese ride-sharing giant Didi filing to go public in the United States. Reports say it could reach a valuation north of $70 billion. No word yet on which U.S. exchange the company will list on, but it plans to use the symbol DIDI. Uber sold its Chinese ride-hailing business to Didi back in 2016 and now owns nearly 13% of its shares. SoftBank's Vision Fund holds about a 21.5% stake. Other investors in Didi include Alibaba and Tencent as well. Vertical Aerospace is going public in a $2.2 billion spec deal with Broadstone Acquisition. The company makes electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, VTOLs. Its investors include American Airlines, which says it would buy as many as 250 of Vertical's planned flying taxis. And Apple has hired a former senior executive at BMW who focused on electric cars at that luxury automaker. This, of course, adds to speculation about the tech giant's plans to compete with the likes of Tesla and others in the electric vehicle or EV market. 
Now to today's top global story. G7 leaders are meeting in Cornwall in the United Kingdom today. CNBC's Steve Sedgwick joins us now with all the headlines that you need to know right now. Get him coming out of that gathering. Good Friday morning to you, Steve. Yeah, really good to see you, Dom. Look, quite rightly, our viewers over the years will question what is the worth of a lot of these meetings, the G7, the formerly G8 when Russia was involved, and the G20, which is a wider gathering as well. And I think we have a few answers about that and a few answers about just how the relationship between Boris Johnson, who was pretty close to Donald Trump, uh, and Joe Biden got on as well when they had their first meeting. Of course, it was the first overseas trip since the inauguration of uh, Joe Biden, and it went pretty well. Um, Boris Johnson calling the relationship between Joe Biden himself a breath of fresh air, saying that there was a complete harmony on a whole host of issues and that a relationship was of a massive strategic importance. So a big tick there for Boris Johnson actually just getting on with Joe Biden on a personal level because there had been a little bit of angst and worry about how they would uh, really get on going forward and what is a key relationship for the UK, uh, underlined by the fact that they re-signing this Atlantic Charter that we talked about yesterday between Roosevelt and Churchill back in 1941, just reinvigorating that for a, a whole host of cooperations on democracy, on reaffirming collective security, etc., etc. But it was on vaccines that uh, the US president made the big headlines yesterday. 500 million doses will be given to developing worlds by uh, the US um, by the middle of next year. But very interesting here what Joe Biden had to say uh, about how the US was going to be handing these vaccines out. Let's listen in. Let me be clear. Just as with the 80 million doses we previously announced, the United States is providing these half million doses with no strings attached. Let me say it again, with no strings attached. Our vaccine donations don't include pressure for favors or potential concessions. We're doing this to save lives, to end this pandemic. That's it, period. Why did I want that sound pulled out, Dom, and why is it important? Because it refers, I think, to trans-Pacific rivalries between the US and China. Don't forget the Chinese, and to a certain extent the Russians, have been handing out vaccines uh, to friends, to developing countries as well. But Joe Biden said, look, we, when we give vaccines, we're not after favours in return, we're not after concessions in return. And I think this is the US and the Western alliance saying, look, we too uh, will be giving vaccines to the rest of the world, taking up our global responsibilities, uh, but we won't be doing it because we want relationship issues uh, sorted out. And that that's kind of, I think, an insinuation, perhaps, that that's what the Chinese have been doing. Now, now Steve, I mean, let, let's talk about some of those relationships. It's been good relationships so far, generally speaking. Are there, though, any battles lurking once the summit formally gets going, either between the U.S. and the U.K. or the U.S. and other countries or the U.K. and other countries? What's the kind of dynamic at play now once this meeting really gets going this weekend? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely spot on. And look, look, it's going to be different now. Let's be honest about it. Joe Biden is more old school. He's more like one of the Bushes or he's more like a, a Mr. Obama in terms of his style, in terms of his dipl diplomatic style. Now, whether you liked it or not, Mr. Trump really did shake things up. We know that. But he did it at a personal level as well. Um, and we know how he made it so important about personal relationships. Well, I think you're not going to see on a surface level Joe Biden and the leaders here in Europe having rows. But there are massive issues out there. The same ones that Mr. Trump had. For instance, what about the security issues? Um, and the fact that, that Germany gets a vast amount of its power and, and energy from Russia, but actually gets a lot of its defence from NATO, which, of course, is backstopped by the US as well. Talking of NATO, we've had um, Monsieur Macron, the French president, in the last 24 hours talking about how, well, it just needs realigning in terms of thinking about who its enemies are and how it's financed as well. And, of course, we know that that is an old sore for the US and, to a certain extent, the UK as well, which is pretty much well-funded NATO as well. So I think there are issues there. Plus, underneath the surface, despite the fact 
that Boris Johnson and Joe Biden clearly had a good set of first meetings as well. There is contention over the Northern Ireland peace process. As we mentioned yesterday, George Mitchell, the US senator, was a large part of that in the late 90s as well. Mr Clinton, I remember being in Dublin when he came through as well, getting a rapturous reception. So the US has got a stake in this one as well. Joe Biden, of course, has played a lot on his Irish roots as well. And that is bubbling under the surface. And what we have heard is that in recent days, US diplomats in London, the most important diplomat in London at the moment, we don't have an ambassador at the moment, Joe Biden hasn't announced one, but really tore a strip off the UK government saying it was a danger that they were uh, basically breaking the Northern Ireland protocol potentially and inflaming tensions as well. So the tensions are there. I just don't think we're going to see it on a leader by leader basis as we may well have seen it with the previous administration. You've got a busy weekend ahead of you. Steve Sedgwick, thank you very much. Enjoy the weekend, sir. Joining me now is political economist Stephanie Kelly, deputy head of Aberdeen Standard Investments Research Institute. Now, Stephanie, you you heard some of what we were talking about with Steve Sedgwick about the dynamic at play here with the G7 meeting. Let's talk about whether or not there will be implications, broadly speaking, on the economic front, on the policy front coming out of this. Sure. So I think in particular, you know, we think about the kinds of things we've just heard, right? So vaccine distribution to emerging markets. I think broader discussions around climate are also going to be central to this G7 summit. And in particular, again, it comes down to things like supporting decarbonization in emerging markets. I think that's the interesting dynamic that's coming through, which is around this is a meeting of developed market leaders. But a lot of the chat that they're going to have is actually going to be around how do we support emerging markets to decarbonize, to get past the COVID kind of crisis. And to me, that's quite important from an economic perspective, because we're seeing this clear divergence between many developed markets and many emerging markets in terms of the speed of COVID recovery and the long term growth potential when it comes to things like climate. So these actually do have potential implications. However, we always have to kind of hold our expectations because these summits often create these big announcements But the follow through at the national level, that's what we've got to see. We've got to see it come through in domestic legislation and actual financial support. So so we've already seen a a good amount of outperformance in certain key emerging markets around the world. And and it was a catch up trade. There's no doubt they underperformed for a certain period of time. And now they are outperforming because there was just a valuation gap between them and diverging and developed markets. If you look at those policies, if we separate them into perhaps the the, the COVID side of things on the economic recovery and then the decarbonization and climate side of things, which one do you think is going to have the most implication for investors in the coming months? I'm speaking just because it seems to me much of the COVID dynamic has already been priced into the markets. Is the climate aspect now something that, that investors should turn their eyes and focus on? I think the challenge with this is always around the timescales. And it's one of the things that always makes me a bit cautious when we have these big events and the announcements that get made. It's when do these things happen? We know that the vaccines that get kind of distributed to emerging markets, it's likely won't happen in this year because developed markets are now turning to emerging markets because they have enough vaccines themselves, right? So that kind of pushes, I guess it pushes vaccines into next year. The decarbonization stuff, I'm a little bit more skeptical about it just because uh, developed markets in the past have committed to supporting emerging markets to decarbonize, but the amount that's been committed at these big set piece events versus what's actually followed through has been much smaller. And I think that's what investors need to be mindful of. You have to read the tea leaves between what's been announced and what's realistically going to happen. Our report 
from Cornwall on the G7 talked about some of the dynamics at play, the complicated relationships involved. Germany in particular, Steve Cedric mentioned, you know, gets a lot of its fuel and energy from Russia, but gets a lot of its defense mechanisms from NATO and Western allies. Let's talk about how complicated it will be with China and many of these countries, because many of these G7 countries count China as one of their, if not their largest trading partner. How exactly then do markets and investors gauge how G7 will tackle what its relationship will China, with China will be in, in the coming years? So I think they'll be pretty. I think they'll be pretty cautious in terms of any kind of uh, major coordinated comment on China. We've already seen allies come together on the issue of human rights in China. I think that's going to be an ongoing theme. But I think for me, actually, the really interesting question is: as we see U.S.-China relations continue to deteriorate, which they do, even under President Biden, it doesn't feel as urgent to markets, but it's happening, and it will continue to happen. As that's happening, I think allies will increasingly be forced to pick a side on key issues. And the question is, can you tread that tightrope of economic reliance on China in many ways? And for Europe, also reliance in terms of green uh, R&D and green technologies for their long-term green infrastructure plans. So those are kind of complicated. How do you match that with aligning with the US in terms of its political concerns and its concerns around transparency and human rights? I think you add to the mix on top of just how do you kind of tread that line, I think a, a growing decision by most major markets to be more aware of their supply chain exposures, especially COVID's kind of exacerbated that, and increasingly have more and more technology and in intellectual property locally in order to not rely. And I think that just continues that deglobalization trend. All right, Stephanie Kelly, Aberdeen Standard, thank you very much for your thoughts. Have a nice weekend. Coming up on the show, more from the Hotter and Hell Energy Conference and Brian Sullivan's conversation with the CEO of Rig Operator, Patterson UTI, Andy Hendricks. But first, as we head out to break, some of your other top stories. That bipartisan group of 10 senators working on an infrastructure plan say they've struck a deal. Reports say the plan will cost $1.2 trillion over the span of eight years, and it will be paid in part by using unspent COVID-19 funds and raising revenues by indexing the federal tax on gasoline to account for inflation. Two passengers aboard a celebrity cruise ship have tested positive for COVID-19. The ship was carrying only fully vaccinated passengers and crew, with the company saying the two passengers were asymptomatic and are currently in isolation. Watch those cruise line stocks in the pre-market. And a third member of a key FDA advisory panel has resigned over the agency's controversial decision to approve Biogen's new Alzheimer's drug. According to the resignation letter obtained by CNBC, Dr. Aaron Kesselheim called the agency's decision quote unquote, probably the worst drug approval decision in recent U.S. history. We are back after this commercial break. Welcome back. The Hotter and Hell Energy Conference taking place in Houston, Texas this week, where oil and gas companies from across the country discuss things like demand and output and operations during the virus pandemic. Our own Brian Sullivan was there with the CEO of one of the big rig operators out there, Patterson UTI. We are joined now by Andy Hendricks. He's president and CEO of Patterson UTI. They are a land drilling rig operator. They are probably the best leading indicator of where this industry is going. And also, I think probably the last person I interviewed at an in-person conference before everything shut down. That was it. It was a little so, over a year ago. Yes, and we're back together. So thank you on that. 
Uh, and again, I said the same thing back in Miami when we spoke, uh, what, a year and a half, 15 months ago. What are you seeing now? Because what a year it has been. You've got 73 operating rigs. What was the low during the lowest point for you guys? So during the COVID downturn, we went all the way down to 34 operating rigs. And if you remember when we were together in Miami a little over a year ago, we had 126 working. So from 126 down to 34, now up to 73. And we're showing a, a projection of more growth. We said we're going to be at 80 in July. And we're in discussions for the rest of the year and into next year to put up some more rigs. So we're encouraged by the activity. Yeah, come more than, coming more than double yeah. off, off those lows. And obviously the price of oil has surprised a lot of people with, yeah. with where it is. But are you still seeing a reluctance to spend a nervousness that maybe 65 or 70 can't last because oil has been so volatile? I don't need to tell you that. <laughs> it's been volatile. And even if there's a pullback from 70, if it comes back to mid to low 60s, that's, that's still okay. We're still going to see some activity growth, even, even if you see a pullback in WTI because of volatility. So I, I'm still encouraged by what we're seeing and the discussions that we're having with our customers. And, and Part of it is because of our leadership position in ESG and reducing emissions on drilling rigs. Operators want to be more responsible about how they're producing shales, and we can help them with that. And how? So, I, I, and listen, sustainability is the watchword. ESG is the investing watchword. Right. A lot of people would say, and everybody here is talking about ESG at this conference. Others would say, you're an, you're an oil rig company. How are you sustainable at all? We're, we're an oil rig company, but somebody's going to have to drill. We want to be able to do it better. We, we all want to do things more responsibly so we can help the operators. We can provide new types of engines that burn 100% natural gas that reduce uh, the emissions. We've also developed a lithium battery hybrid energy storage, storage solution that can reduce emissions as well. So we're encouraged by the discussions that we're having with the EMPs, the operators, and wanting to deploy this type of technology. You know, the, the, the companies that hire you, investors have been loud and clear. They want capital discipline. Don't just they drill, do. drill, drill, drill. We want to see positive cash flow. You kind of want a mix, don't you? I mean, you need companies to spend. How, how willing are companies to open their wallets right now? So, you know, certainly EMPs have to show capital discipline, but this is relative to their budgets, and their budgets were set at a lower WTI than where we are today. So there's room for us to grow activity and the EMPs still showing capital discipline at the same time. The old saying in oil and gas is just the cure for high prices is high prices because everybody comes out, starts drilling again, overproduces, the price collapses, and then we're back to where we were. Are we smarter this time? You know, I'll paraphrase Mark Twain in one of his quotes. You know, the rumors of our demise in oil and gas have been greatly over-exaggerated. <laughs> we still need energy. As countries continue to get vaccinated, they open up their economies, there's going to be demand for more energy. Do you see, do you see demand for oil and gas remaining fairly strong? The energy minister of Saudi Arabia on an OPEC call a couple weeks ago uh, said some of these forecasts for, you know, zero carbonization is la-la land. That was his quote, where do you think demand's going to be in five years, 10 years? I think demand continues to grow for the next five or 10 years. And look, we get that there's going to be an energy transformation. We know that this is going to happen, but whether it takes 10 years or 50 years, I think if you look at what's happening today, investors want to be in oil and gas. You know, we're still going to see some demand for our products yeah. for a while. All right, big interview there. Our thanks to Brian and, of course, to Patterson, UTI's president and CEO, Andy Hendricks, for that interview. Go to CNBC.com for the full content there. Well, on deck for the show, Morgan Stanley's head of macro strategy on stocks march to new highs despite rising inflation. 
And if you have not already done so, please subscribe to our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple or Spotify or your podcast app of choice. And June is Pride Month at CNBC. All month long, we'll be spotlighting CNBC contributors and business leaders and our own CNBC anchors and producers and talent. Here is CNBC's Brandon Gomez. My mom always told me that love should be unconditional. But it wasn't until I was 19 and coming out as gay that I realized it applied to myself. I also needed to unconditionally love myself. Stop letting fear keep me from understanding who I am. Take pride in it. Because that's how you find people who are going to embrace you, lift you higher, and love you unconditionally. All right, that is a live view of Times Square. It's 5.50 a.m. Eastern time. Just below there is our colleagues over at Squawk Box who are getting ready at the NASDAQ market site to do their show in just about six to eight minutes time here. Traffic is, of course, picking up these days with pandemic restrictions easing up just a bit. Well, the markets are largely shrugging off yesterday's hotter-than-expected consumer price index with the S&P closing at a record high for the 27th time this year. That suggests investors are still buying into the Fed's stance that this round of inflation is, that word, transitory. Your next guest says investors need to separate inflation optimism from hysteria, but he also says strong growth will be harder to come by in the second half of this year. We are speaking with Matthew Hornbach. He's the global head of macro strategy at Morgan Stanley. Matthew, thank you very much for being here with us this morning. Let's talk about whether or not the markets have it right, because equity markets at record highs, fixed income markets on the Treasury side of things showing interest rates falling. It sure doesn't feel like an inflationary type environment. No, it it certainly doesn't, Dom. And thanks for having me on. Um, You know, I think the underlying dynamic that the global marketplace and the global economy has been dealing with for about a year now has been liquidity coming from central banks all over the world. Of course, the ECB and the Fed have been the two prominent uh, players in the liquidity game, but the liquidity continues to flow. We can see that in a variety of ways. And I think what you saw yesterday was once we got past a pretty big risk event, which was the U.S. CPI report. Uh, investors decided it was time to start putting that money to work. And that went into a variety of asset classes, including treasuries and equities, as you noted. So let's talk about why interest rates are falling right now, Matt. I I, I mean, I understand there there are positioning aspects. There may be some technical aspects to that. But is there any fundamental reason why we could be shaking off a few months worth now of hotter than expected inflation data and still having yields react the way that they are What gives? Yeah, Dom, I think what might be going on is the idea that when you're dealing with cost push inflation, you know, when uh, companies or businesses are raising prices, despite a demand outlook from their perspective that just might not be that great, then you're really talking about potential for softer growth in the future. Uh, And that might be one of the things that's going on right now. In fact, earlier this week, the small business survey and the NFIB survey came out. And some of the data in there was a little concerning. We saw that small businesses were planning on raising prices pretty aggressively over the next three months, but their expectations for sales over this period were actually still pretty depressed, which is a bit odd, right? Why would you be raising prices when your expectations for sales aren't going up? 
Well, it's because your own costs are going up and you're forced to raise prices. So something like that, you know, is not great for the demand outlook, Dom. Transitory has been a key trigger word for for a lot of folks in the marketplace these days. Transitory, is it going to be transitory? Is it not? We've been talking about inflation fears for a long time now. We have not really seen them come to fruition just yet, but transitory is still something that's going to be very controversial in terms of how people are going to view this particular round of inflation or, or price hikes. What can we actually, what can the markets glean from this, or what can they actually tell everybody else, Main Street and Wall Street, about whether or not some of these cost pressures are here to stay? Dom, when we look at the inflation basket, there are clearly components of it that we think will be transitory. Used car prices are not going to go up 10% per month forever. So that's a component that will soften at some point in the future, we think. Now, there are other components of the CPI basket that we think will have some more sustainability to them. So, for example, in yesterday's report, one of the areas of strength that we think could be sustained over the coming years is owner's equivalent rent or housing related components of the CPI basket. That's something that the Fed will be paying very close attention to. So as the housing market continues to do well, as that component of the basket continues to inflate, that will contribute to a sustained rise in inflation. But some of these larger components like used cars, Dom, those are going to come back down to earth at some point. We've seen the implications for some of those hotter than expected parts in the markets as well. Certain stocks and industries like auto parts, like, you know, auto dealers, that sort of thing have been kind of reacting in kind. I wonder, Matt, before we let you go here, what exactly is the positioning that you're looking for? Where should be where should investors be overweight, underweight? Is it bonds or is it commodities? Where should they go for the best returns? Well, well, Dom, we still have a risk on bias in our allocation recommendations. You know, again, the liquidity dynamic is really dominant here. Um, So ultimately, we don't think you're going to get the best returns in the Treasury market. Yields are quite low. There is limited scope for yields to fall from these levels. So we're continuing to recommend more riskier asset classes like equities or corporate credit. All right. So we're watching those particular moves there as well. And just really quickly, just about 10, 15 seconds left here, Matt, oil prices, do they keep going higher? Well, you know, we we think that some of the oil price, you know, the commodity markets, including oil, the prices have disconnected from fundamentals to a certain extent. So we are kind of looking for consolidation, maybe slightly lower prices in the future. But ultimately, liquidity will have a role to play there, too, Dom. It's a really tough call. All right. Matt Hornbach and Morgan Stanley, thank you very much, for, sir, sir. Have a great weekend. You too. All right. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box is picking up the market coverage coming up next. Remember, the S&P 500 closed at a record high yesterday. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. 
See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.